All right, we're going to start tonight with a game. It's going to be fun. You're going to love it. Name that tune. I'm not singing. I don't expect anybody to sing. I'm just going to tell you facts, and you tell me if you know what the song is. This song won a Grammy in 1994. It was number one on the Billboard Top 100 for 11 consecutive weeks. It's even number 98 in the Billboard All-Time Top 100. It was a cover from a country song done in 1993. And if you're old enough, you might especially remember it from those late night infomercials for all those compilation CDs. If you don't know what I'm talking about, or if you're at home and you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, imagine trying to watch TV as a young person at night with your friends and every eight minutes, a, a commercial with the same 20 clips comes on for three. And you just do that hour after hour. It's terrible. This one was on the Ultimate Love Songs collection. Remember that one? Anybody want to take a guess? It's not, no, good. It is, it's I Swear by the all-male quartet, All for One. And swearing is what we're gonna talk about tonight. Not just swearing, but these guys are swearing by the moon and the stars in the sky, which is actually really problematic. This is what we're gonna also find out but also for better or for worse, till death do us part, that's a good thing. So surprisingly, our confession has something to say about statements and about songs like that one. Tonight we're looking at chapter 23 of the Second London Confession on lawful oaths and vows. And if there was another award being given out for probably the most neglected chapter in our confession, this one might get it because people don't think about lawful oaths and vows very much. You probably go, what's an oath versus a vow? Well, we're gonna find out. You may not know. But people in our culture don't take honesty very seriously, so it's one reason we don't think about it very much. Another would be that it's common language today to swear vainly. But the framers of our confession gave it an entire chapter. And so we're gonna give it the kind of attention that an entire chapter deserves. Some reasons that this chapter might be included is number one, Christian liberty. And if you remember, that's the section that we're in. So this is the section on Christian liberty. Everything flows out of that doctrine. Last week was on religious worship and the Sabbath, and today is on lawful oaths and vows, and next week I'll be teaching that too will be on the civil magistrate. So that's going to be fun. Yay, politics. DC people in the back. She didn't hear me. <laughs> so Christian liberty gives us the freedom to obey what we previously could not obey from the heart and to not obey what we actually should not be obeying. In other words, we're free to obey God and we're free to not obey the doctrines of men unless the doctrines of men, or let me just say, the rules of men, are in fact what God commands you to follow. 
And that's where we begin to get into that kind of mess. So there is a seriousness about oaths and vows, uh, but there is also a goodness about it. We don't think about the goodness part of it probably near as much as we think about the, the gravity or the weight of it. But this is beyond a promise, okay? We're not just saying, I promise this, I promise that. We are swearing. And we usually are swearing by something. And as we'll find out, there's really only one thing we should be swearing by. But this is a um, guard against abuses from different sources. The Roman Catholic Church and the civil magistrate often were connected over the course of church history during Christendom, and that often didn't go well for people who had to make oaths and vows. Historically, it's problematic because people required self-incrimination or witnessing against oneself in court. In fact, that's that's why we have the Fifth Amendment in our Constitution, is to guard us from self-incrimination like that. So plead the Fifth, right? Um, It also is guarding against varied sin and error and perversions. Um, Some of those errors would be those of the cults and the sects and the radicals um, during the Reformation that would mainly refer to the Anabaptists. If you remember, not the Baptists, that's us. The Anabaptists were also called the Radical Reformation. And so they, one thing that they held to, and if you even look at your Mennonite and your, um, what is it, Quaker and Amish friends, I don't know if anybody has any, probably not down here, but if you're from Pennsylvania or up north somewhere, maybe you do, um, they are also going to reject the validity of lawful oaths and vows. They don't think that it's lawful to make any. Okay, it's always sin in their eyes. So they don't do it. It's part of the reason why they seclude themselves so much. They don't get pulled into that kind of thing. So the other thing it's against is uh, the errors and the perversions uh, that the Roman Catholic Church would place upon its priesthood and its its, uh, magisterium. And it guards, especially when we start talking about the Bible, against violating the third commandment, against using God's name in vain, and the ninth commandment against bearing false witness against your neighbor. And those are important, because those still apply. So if you look there, we're going to start with lawful oaths. Paragraph one is going to define what an oath is. A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. So the first thing you'll notice that is that oath is an act of religious worship. What we don't mean is that it's an element of the gathering on the Lord's Day. We mean that it is a set-apart kind of holy speech that we should pay extra close attention to and is in fact worshipful when done lawfully. Um, It's distinct in that way from our common everyday language and it's only lawful when it's sworn in God's name, which we'll talk again about that more in a minute in paragraph two. But there's essentially two kinds of of oaths that you're gonna run into. There's more, but essentially two basic. One is an assertory oath, which is essentially just swearing to the truthfulness of your account of things past and present. So that would be testifying in court. That would be why we say things like we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God or whatever state you're in, depending. And there's promissory oaths, 
which is swearing to perform a given deed in the future. Okay, so that's becoming a citizen, taking an oath of office, uh, signing or co-signing a car or a house, an apartment, that if that person doesn't pay, guess who gets to pay? Ryan gets to pay, because he's got that bug money. All right. Um, all lawful oaths are by definition sworn before God. And this goes back again to that third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name, in, excuse me, the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. And Jeremiah 4, and if you swear, as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory, him being God. So there's three things there, truth, righteousness, and judgment. We swear oaths in, thank you, brother, in truth, Mark has extra copies for you. We swear oaths in truth when its content and its motive result in speaking what accords with reality, and is done so with sincerity. In righteousness, it's um, a commitment to do what is right, just, and fair in the sight of God and others. And in judgment, it is to demonstrate carefulness and discernment in your speech and giving just judgments in light of how or if the oath is fulfilled. Okay, so that's part of any normal civil judicial government which is usually going to be the main place we run into this stuff. By definition, an oath, a lawful oath, is sworn to men. Okay, not to God, but to men. It's sworn before God, but it's sworn to other people. Second Chronicles 6, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servant, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. It's a plea to God to do right according to what he alone can see. Uh, by definition, a lawful oath is for confirmation. Okay, So again, it's weightier than a promise. If you remember back in chapter 2, paragraph 2, it says there, in his sight, that is God, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. And it does not depend on any creature. So the confession is depending upon the infinity of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God to say, this is why we can do this and it be okay. So we call God to witness. We do that by recognizing God's omniscience and omnipresence. We give witness to the truth and sincerity of our words when we appeal to him in that way, and we also appeal to God as judge. To recognize God's holiness and absolute righteousness and appealing to him to judge between oneself and others in a very solemn way, a very final way. And so it's meant to confirm the truth versus falsehood. It's kind of the last stop on the, uh, the honesty train so to speak. You can say, I, yeah, sure, or sure, I promise, but if you swear under oath, that is you in the, something of a religious way calling God to witness and to judge you and the person 
that you are taking an oath with about if you are telling the truth or not. And that takes it up a notch. So, there are examples of lawful oaths in the Bible. I won't read all of them. I'm just going to kind of run through a few here. Abraham, in Genesis 24, made his servant swear not to let Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Jacob, in Genesis 47, made Joseph swear he would make sure that his body was buried with his fathers rather than in Egypt. He even says, quote, swear to me, and Joseph does swear to him. Then Joseph likewise makes his brothers swear the same thing about his body. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, prophesying to King Ahab, swears, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, that they would have a complete drought until Elijah said otherwise. And that came true, didn't it? Because God told him. This one's funny. I kind of forgot about this. Nehemiah in chapter 5 and 13. When Israel had begun to intermesh themselves again with the evil surrounding nations, Nehemiah confronts and curses the people, and he beats some of them and pulls some of their hair out. And forces them to take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And also when the rich Israelites were stealing from the poor ones, Nehemiah made them swear that they would give everything back that they had taken, and even called the priests, so it got holy, and made them swear to do as they had said. Ezra, same situations, chapter 10. Similar circumstances, Ezra is weeping in public over Israel's sin and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And they took that oath. The law of Moses, of course, requires oaths in certain situations. I'm not going to read all of those. You've got those there for your, on your paper if you want to go back and check those later. I'm also not going to read this section, but the prophets' predictions in that latter part of the Old Testament indicate the lawfulness of oaths as well. You can go back and read those passages, especially those in Isaiah. But let's see here under the New Covenant, Christ's own example is going to indicate that oaths are in fact lawful. Matthew 26, this is him on trial. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So there's that, I adjure you by the living God. He's asking him to swear an oath. And so what does Jesus say? He said, you have said so. So he agreed. He said, yeah, that's true. I agree to that oath. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven which, of course, to them was blasphemy and tipped it over the edge. Paul gives us examples as well. Uh, if you'll see those, Romans 1, 9, this is, a lot of this is starting out conversations. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. 2 Corinthians 1, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And then in Acts 18, we see Paul again. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, 
he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So, these are apostles doing this. This is Jesus doing this. This is the prophets doing this. This is the Old Testament patriarchs doing this. So we can't just look at this because we're about to run into a problem. You may even be thinking about it already. It's okay to make, law, to make lawful oaths, apparently. Let's look at paragraph two, the first half. Oath has sanctity. People should swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by that glorious and awe-inspiring name or to swear at all by anything is sinful and to be abhorred. So, when we are considering the sanctity of an oath, the first thing that we remember is that we are doing it by God's name and his only. And this should call us back to the first commandment, shouldn't it? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me that is besides or except for me. And historically, this again would be targeting Roman Catholicism, who often swore and would encourage swearing by dead saints and their relics and things like that. So there's obviously a broader application than just that. Um, we're to do this with the matching reverence that's appropriate for swearing to God. Numbers 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So we're connecting, and we do connect honor to our oaths, or we should. And there's a worshipfulness, like we've said, and a solemnity about it. And we're appealing to the highest court, aren't we? So our oaths should reflect the seriousness of the fact that we're appealing to the highest court. They should reflect the seriousness of who the judge is that we're appealing to and the ramifications of doing just that. This is no laughing matter, and God takes it quite seriously. So also that means we're to do this without sin. And essentially what we mean here, you can look at the accompanying verses later, but we mean that we're not to take oaths foolishly or really carelessly, or with idolatry, okay? Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Actually, that's not in your notes. I meant to put that in there, so you may have to write that one out. So here is the problem, though. Here's what we run into. Jesus' famous words at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 33 through 37, again you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Sounds like what we've heard so far. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the foot, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair, white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Weird. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is Jesus contradicting these other apostles and prophets? Well, of course we know the answer is no. James repeats something very similar. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation, or it can be 
translated, you may not fall under hypocrisy. So the question then becomes, how are we to reconcile the passages of Scripture that look to be confirming the goodness and helpfulness of oaths and vows with these statements that sound as if they are saying to simply not make oaths or vows at all? Are the Anabaptists right? Do we need to do what the Amish are doing? Well, the answer to that comes from some of the things we've studied already, especially going all the way back to our chapter on the Scriptures. We are not Biblicists, if you remember that term. In other words, given all of Scripture and letting it interpret itself and not reading the Bible outside of the Holy Spirit's work for 2,000 years in the church, we read these passages under those authorities. We don't see Jesus and James contradicting the rest of the Bible. We see instead a prohibition against foolish, rash, and vain swearing. And that includes excessive swearing. So making lots and lots and lots of oaths. It should be, in fact, rare. So Jesus was against the multiplication of oaths. And one way we know this is the Pharisees believed that if one swore by some created thing, that they wouldn't necessarily have to keep their word. If you remember when they misused the, the Corbin rule uh, to deprive their elderly parents of money by giving it as a gift to God in the temple, which, of course, they then would use that religious gift for themselves. Right, so they didn't have to give this money up. They gave it to the temple, and their hands are in the, the pockets of the temple. Right? So that's depriving. It's evil. This also concerns the second commandment, doesn't it? That's a different kind of idolatry. Not worship God only, but worship God as he says, not as your imagination says. And so making an oath being worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Okay, there's common language with the second commandment in Jesus and James's comments. Can you figure out what they are? Don't answer. This is being recorded. I'm going to answer for you. It's because all the things mentioned by our Lord and by James, repeating him, are what? We're not to swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or our own heads, but it never says don't swear to God because Jesus would be contradicting the Old Testament if he did that. And James, a Jew, would also know better. There are things that matter as far as changing when it comes to the new covenant. But this is a moral principle. Remember, we are talking about the moral law here. We talked about that back in the section on the threefold division of the law. These are the abiding principles. Um, and that should make us also notice what we talked about in that section on general equity. So we see general equity at work right here. Are there some ways that the Old Testament uh, judicial laws are going to require oaths and even have some very severe penalties that under the new covenant will not apply, but that the moral underpinning of swearing oaths and vows lawfully still applies because the moral law is what's underneath them. And that's what's happening here, okay? So it shows that swearing itself isn't wrong, but that swearing in these ways is wrong. Deuteronomy 6, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, 
him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. We said, saw that earlier. And again, Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast him, and by his name you shall swear. These are commands. But let's go ahead and look at the second half of paragraph 2. We'll talk about the legitimacy of oaths. Yet in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm, so we said earlier, truth and end all conflict. So a lawful oath should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. So the first thing we know is that it's only lawful when it's required legitimately. It's legitimately warranted. What might that be? Well, when the matter is extra serious or weighty, the consequences then would be grave. When confirmation of the truth ends up being very important, like in a court case. And in times of conflict, when reputation or livelihood or something like that is at stake, it's meant to settle those conflicts. We are right to do this because, again, God himself does it. And we're going to see that right here. Hebrews chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God made an oath. And who did God swear to? If you kept reading, you would see God swore to himself because there's no one higher with whom to swear. So in reference to the Matthew 5 and James 2 thing we talked about earlier, um, we should understand that these things being legitimately warranted should be something of a rarity. And while they're not forbidden, they should be the exception, not the rule of your life. They should be uncommon. You shouldn't just go around swearing to God about everything. Good luck with that one. Probably going to be lying at some point. So these will be taken seriously, considered carefully. We'll talk some more about that. All right, and it's legitimate when it's legitimately required. This is, again, against the Anabaptists who took a Biblicist reading of Matthew 5 and James 2. Um, they said that all oaths and vows are considered sinful, and they did that because there's a kind of hyper-discontinuity for them between the Old and the New Testaments, right? There's no credence given to that concept of general equity, and if it's in the Old Testament, it's just irrelevant. All we think we can see, even though it's not true, we saw all the things that Paul said, all, they, they, all that they think they can see is Jesus said, don't make oaths. James said, don't make oaths. And they're not reading it with the rest of their Bible, they're just seeing the plain statement, and they're being confused, okay? But that's cutting, what did Andy Stanley say? Unhitching the Old Testament from the New, and he was wrong to say that. That's kind of an Anabaptist attitude, right? And so what is a lawful oath, and who is the authorized authority? This anticipates the next chapter again on the civil magistrate, but the first London Confession states this in Article 50. It is the magistrate's duty to protect all under them for, from all wrong, injury, oppression, and molestation. 
As we'll see, God has given the civil magistrate the authority of the sword to restrain evil and to preserve this creation while it lasts. But that's the limits of its authority. So the believers should not refuse taking an oath when it is required of them by a legitimate authority functioning legitimately. If you get summoned to court, you should go. And you should have no problem in your conscience taking an oath that you will tell the truth. In doing so, what would we have to hide? And if we do have something to hide, we should probably admit it. So, in that way, the civil government and its authority comes from God, so it is his authority authorizing them. And so they become legitimate in that way. Not in every way, but in that way. It also means that we shouldn't forbid these things. Again, God and Paul both make vows. Some of that's repetitive there. But if you look at Revelation 10, we even see an angel swore by God who lives forever and ever, or Christ, who created heaven and was in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So he created heaven, earth, and the sea, and everything that's within it. And we, the angel, feels comfortable in his holiness, swearing to Christ. And so forbidden oaths are just those that are flippant or profane or uncalled for, um, often hypocritical, used in order to make an impression and to kind of spice up your daily conversations. Okay? So you can think of the OMGs and the things like that that are all, the, all over the internet and in people's mouths all day, every day. And that's a very flippant way of taking God's name and using it to confirm that you're telling the truth. So let your yes be yes and your no be no in that way. Paragraph three, oaths have gravity. Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by ill-advised, false, and empty oaths, and because of them this land mourns. And that is Jeremiah's language. So given what's been stated already, we know that oaths are to be taken with solemn consideration, with careful honesty, and with fearful sobriety. That's what this is getting at. Leviticus 19, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Jeremiah 23, the land is full of adulterers because of the curse, referring to swearing, the land mourns. So right here, it's interesting, our Presbyterian and independent brothers and sisters included an extra sentence. We cut it out. And the reason is not because we didn't agree, that we didn't agree with it. It's because of brevity. They felt like it had already been said and it was getting repetitive. But what they said was this, it is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being, being imposed by lawful authority. Okay, so they're just pressing back home basically what we've been said and really putting the gas on. You should be doing this. 
It's not really a good reason for you not to, unless there is, which we'll talk about next. Oath sincerity in chapter, or paragraph four. An oath is to be expressed in the plain and ordinary meaning of the words without any ambiguity. Ambiguity, the original said equivocation or mental reservation. This limits the power and the role of the civil magistrate and others to, from misrepresenting you or from binding you to things that you were unaware of or didn't understand. So the language should be clear and common that it should be in plain and ordinary fashion. This refers to using words that plainly fit the common circumstances of the people and the places present at the time. If someone came into court and started speaking in King James English, some of those words might mean different things to us. That's not okay, because nobody talks that way. And so it's a misunderstanding. I don't know how you would end up getting somebody put in jail that way, but I'm sure somebody knows and can think of one. Um, and so this addresses deceit by way of manipulating language, especially using words in ways that they would not commonly be understood. It should also be done without confusion, that is without equivocation or ambiguity. This refers to using words in an unclear way, especially by using a word with more than one meaning without clarification in order to deceive. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And third, we're to do this without reservation, that is without mental reservation. This refers to the unspoken qualifications one has in their hearts and minds when making an oath, kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back when you make a promise. That's essentially what this is trying to guard against. The person then keeps these qualifications hidden in order to free themselves from commitment in the future should they desire to do so. Okay, that's also sinful and God hates it. Again, Westminster and Savoy adding stuff. This cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds the, to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics and infidels. I think this is important stuff, actually. It, it is repetitive in some ways, um, but what, he, what they're essentially saying is this, that you must keep lawful oaths even if there's negative consequences for you in keeping those, that God never expects you to accept or agree with a sinful oath, and that if you do make a sinful oath, you don't have to keep that sinful oath. Your sin was in making the oath, not in keeping it, or not keeping it. So don't fulfill sinful oaths. Repent of them. All right. That's the oath section. Now let's talk about vows. For whatever reason, the Baptists abbreviated into one article what took Westminster three. If you're curious, go back and read it. Um, there's, again, no significant doctrinal differences here. We just talk better, I guess, as Baptists. These two terms, oaths and vows, have much in common, obviously, concerning legitimacy and gravity and sanctity. Numbers 30, we hear, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. 
But there are, in fact, differences, right? Paragraph five, that first half, short. A vow must not be made to any creature but to God alone. Okay, so we see that religious worship is the same as under oaths. That it's sworn before God is also the same. But here, we're not swearing to other people, or, yeah, to other people. We're swearing to God only. That's the main difference when we're talking about a vow. Numbers 30, verse, nope, that's a repeat, sorry. Did I write it twice in the packet? Is Numbers 30, verse 2 twice? All right, good, just me. Another difference is that it's not for confirmation. A vow is for commitment. Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, and you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. This is echoing what Jesus said. Jesus is really probably pulling from passages like this one about not making flippant oaths and vows. So it's better in some ways to not make a vow. Examples of this would be like the monastic vows that some might take of poverty or silence or chastity. But of course, there's also marriage vows. We're telling God, I promise, I'm not going to leave this person. I'm not going to forsake this person. No matter what comes along. And we, made that, we make that to God. Even unbelievers make that to God because it is a common institution that they get to participate in as part of God's creation. It is not an institution that is in and of itself of the church. Again, we'll talk more about that kind of thing next time. We, of course, should display the gospel most gloriously as Christians in our marriages. But as Jeff talked about, to be married is not somehow make you spiritually superior to single people. Or else Jesus is on JV. And he's not. Second half of paragraph five there, vow performance. Vows should be made and performed with the most conscientious, the old says, all religious care and faithfulness. That is, first, with a clear conscience. Psalm 76, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. And that way, again, it's better to not make a vow sometimes than to make one and fail to keep it. Don't go around making vows if you can't keep them. Also, with reverent care, we make vows. Psalm 76, the second half of that verse. We're speaking to him of who is to be feared. So to put that all together, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them to him who is to be feared. Remember, fear in the Bible is often what? Worship, right? To fear is to worship. So we're only to make vows that are biblically warranted, unlike the, again, Roman Catholic monastic vows, which go beyond what the scriptures teach. And so some examples of that, like they listed, would be like perpetual singleness. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is even going to go so far as to say that in the last days, which he just means the time between Jesus' ascension and return, which means we're in it and have been for 2,023 years or something close to that. 
and as long as until he tarries, people who abandon the faith follow deceitful spirits and demonic teaching as hypocritical liars with seared consciences. One thing that they do is they prohibit marriage. Whoa. It's a little clue as to when Jeff gets to the doctrine of the church, why these guys said things like, the Pope is that antichrist that Christ will destroy with the brightness of his coming. He's no way head of the church. So, that's for free. Poverty would make this proverb, from Proverbs 30, sinful. He prays, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. How can you pray that? If you have to be poor to be righteous. Another thing they would do is separate themselves from the world so that one will somehow, by doing so, receive benefits that otherwise would have been impossible. It relies on extraordinary rather than the ordinary means of grace. If I go live away from the world, somehow that's going to make me more righteous when God says that's not how that works. You're just as sinful, and you carry yourself with you, so do all those other monks and whoever else, nuns and whatever, you're all just as sinful when you walk in as when you were not there. So, our righteousness is Christ, going back to the chapter on justification. And then there's sinful ecclesiastical obedience to base superiors in the ecclesiastical structure, which itself goes beyond the bounds of Scripture, including adding offices to the church. This is going to be immediately in reference to the Pope of Rome saying that he is the only living apostle, that he's the successor of Peter in that sense, and that way he's very much like our charismatic friends who say that they get words from God like apostles did. And so he builds this superstructure and this magisterium and the priesthood and all these things, not because Scripture tells him that that's a good thing, but because that system has been created by men. And so it would be sinful to make a vow of obedience to something like that is what they're getting at. And here with uh, the last one, with diligent faithfulness, we are to make our vows. They are voluntary, but once they're made, you shall not delay fulfilling them, but perform it with the most conscientious care and faithfulness. So in other words, don't make a, a vow and they go, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. And just keep kicking the can down the road. There's something about that that's dishonest. Something about that that says, yeah, I kind of said that, but eh, when I do it, it doesn't matter. And somebody else is looking at you going, pay me my bug money. So anyway, we shouldn't delay these things, and we should be very careful and faithful when we do them. Uh, the last bit of five there, talk about vow per perversion. So here it goes with, however, Roman Catholic, or if you read the old one, it says popish, monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and obedience to monastic rules are by no means steps to higher perfection. Instead, they are superstitious and sinful snares in which Christians may not entangle themselves. So some of what I already said probably could have gone in this section too. Um, 
But some extra things you might think about. If you look at the, the proof texts here, you might look at them and go, I don't get it. They're just examples of the principles at work here. So, for instance, listing 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uses marriage as an example of a common institution that should be held with high dignity, but is temporal and not itself the kingdom of God. It will pass away with this old creation. Which extends on to things like all common work and vocation can honor God and do common good. One of the problems that the Reformation was pushing back against was the degradation of common things, that only the clergy were doing anything important or of eternal value. When really Paul is saying, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do to the glory of God, and in so doing, in that way it matters. You won't be taking your job with you. You won't be taking your breakfast. But you can do those things and glorify God. This cereal is good. That's right. But it's common. And we don't want to degradate or despise the common things. They are also from God, even if they don't redeem things. The word secular, by the way, was actually never meant to be a bad word. It was just meant to say not sacred, common. It's, it's taken on a bit of a negative connotation for us, and we should push back against that. Um, apart from secular work, our world would fall apart. And as we'll see next week, the Noahic Covenant is still applicable. And it's the reason that the world doesn't fall apart nor become a utopia. Because this isn't heaven and it's not hell. So keep that in your back pocket. We'll get there next time. Is there a problem, though? Yes, secularization, the secularizing of everything, is problematic. It's one extreme that we shouldn't go to. It carnalizes human work, common work, makes it selfish. It can even make it nihilistic, purposeless. Just here because I guess I have to be. If I don't, I die. I don't really want to do that. It doesn't mean anything. We're not with that. There's also another side of that coin, some sort of dominionism, or uh, not like the Anabaptists, but by like uh, the dominionists. I'm just going to say that. Uh, there is a hypercontinuity, a scheme that goes that direction that's also problematic. And it usually comes as an overcorrection of the first. So we love our dispensational friends. But we think that they have too much discontinuity in their view of redemptive history, and it affects even things like this. We love our really hardline Presbyterian, postmillennial, theonomic, Reconstructionist friends as well. They're also brothers and sisters in Christ, but we think that their eschatology is over-realized and it doesn't take covenant theology correctly, especially not in the way that the Baptists took it. So we deny against godless societies, mainly because it's against God's law, in particular his natural law, which is his moral law. It's the reason that we will be judged? What standard by which will, will men be judged on the last day? By the Ten Commandments and all their implications. That moral law, which is what natural law is, written here. Whoops. We deny against those other 
Christian nationalism, things like that, that hyper-spiritualize common work. And they end up, what, really where the rubber meets the road is this. They confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of men. And so then you kind of start getting law and gospel mixing together, and that is a problem. Okay? So this becomes over-realized expectations of this age that we will Christianize our workplace and our politics, and those institutions will somehow be transformed into the next life stuff, even before Jesus comes back. So if you want to talk authority, which, again, we'll talk about this more next time, that is confusing the authority of the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which the church holds, with the sword that the, the civil magistrate holds. Okay. All right, we're to do this without self-righteousness. You see the, the text there is Ephesians 4.28. That's about thieves no longer stealing, but instead working hard and being generous. What does that have to do with this? Well, it's an example. We should seek to earn a living wage do so because the gospel propels us to be generous, not because it earns us any kind of merit or unique closeness with God. Okay? We're to do so without ungodly superstition. Again, this is going back to the Roman Catholic religion and today what we might consider to be a prosperity gospel or a name it and claim it kind of thing or hyper-charismatic views of faith and the gospel, which is not really the gospel. And they would have been a lot more like the Anabaptists back in the day of the Reformation and the post-Reformation. So these both go beyond Scripture and rely ultimately on an extra-biblical apostolic voice like we talked about before, Peter's successor or some sort of prophet, figurehead, or apostle. So that's that chapter. 